Geopolitics and Empire is joined by ethicist Daniel Natal of the Daniel Natal Show, and he's also a top-tier analyst and brain. Welcome to the podcast, Daniel. Hey, thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, I, I am not a top-tier brain. That would be you, I think. Um, big fan of yours, always have been, and uh, follow your work very closely so that I can plagiarize it. No, I mean, your your stuff is is, is fantastic. We chatted on my TNT program uh, uh, last year. And um, yeah, it's, it's uh, time to have you on. And I think one of the topics we're going to broach that everyone is broaching now is who rules uh, the world. I was on Jeremy Ryan Slate's program. He was asking that question. I was on Sean, Sean Atwood's program. He was asking that question. Everyone wants to know now <laughs> who rules uh, the world. So uh, let's get let's get into that. Well, I've got an interesting theory and my interesting theory, um, and this is going to go way down the rabbit hole and hopefully it doesn't bore anybody, but um, it starts with my son. My son asked about the Middle Ages. He suddenly got into, you know, kind of the feudal age for whatever reason. And so we studied it. We read a couple books on it, saw videos on it. And there's three basic powers in the Middle Ages. One was, of course, you know, the kings. One was, of course, the church. And the third uh, that nobody talks about are the guilds, right? And so um, there were the mercantile guilds and the trade guilds uh, were the, the two basic, but for, for our purposes, it's the mercantile guilds uh, basically were extremely powerful. They ruled the Middle Ages. Most of the domestic policy was done by these guilds. The king was you know, dealing with international stuff. The church was dealing with international stuff, but for domestic affairs, the guilds uh, basically, they, like, as I said, very socialistic. They would set the prices. So if if you were a cobbler, you couldn't set the prices for your shoes. They also didn't allow innovation. If you if you came up with a new way to do something, they said, no, 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 you're going to do it like your father and grandfather did it. So basically, Europe goes into stagnation. There's much sto social stability, but a lot of stagnation for a thousand years. And so the guilds eventually come into conflict with the the kings and the church, and everybody's going through this power dynamic. And um, if you read Dante, which me and my son did, just to mention him again, uh, he talks in there all throughout the Divine Comedy about you know the pope, the pope's fighting with the with the the German emperor, and you have all these battles. And so there there was this battle for supremacy, and we always concentrate on that, the pope versus the emperor. We never pay attention to this third group. And that's where the story gets really interesting because I saw, and this is, I went down the rabbit hole, starting with this, I, somebody put, posted the flag of the British East India Company, and it looked surprisingly like what we think of as the American flag. It had 13 red and white stripes, and it had a field of blue in, in the upper left-hand corner. And um, I was like, that's odd. You know, it had a Union Jack originally. And so I, that got my curiosity. And I was like, okay, so what does the British East India Company have to do with this? And one of the things is the mercantile guilds, right? So the mercantile guilds essentially gain power and money through, um, you know, mercantile activities, right? The industrial revolution happens, they, they get textiles for very cheap, they sail to Asia, trade the textiles for spices and, and stuff, coffee and, and, and gold and everything else. They come back, you know, through this arbitrage, and they get vastly wealthy. And one of the things that happens is the Protestant Reformation. When the Protestant Reformation happens, the, the church basically stops being able to tithe people in Northern Europe. And so if you don't have to give up 10% of your money to the church, that 10%, well, why don't you invest it with the guilds, with the mercantile guilds? They suddenly get extremely wealthy and all of a sudden the power dynamic shifts away from the traditional aristocracy and the church 
as as they're being kind of weakened by this by this third group and the money flows are going and all of a sudden the growth of corporations happens uh but i'll shut up there because i've been talking for way too long so jump in no i think you're you're, you're really on to something and i think this is why we have to have a deep understanding of, of history and then that's why I like guests uh, like yourself because all this uh, everything that everyone's talking about today world economic forum uh you know th that didn't just start in 19 was it 72 when you know cloud corporate commander klaus ostensibly founded it with you know henry kissinger's um blessing and cia uh backing you know i i read a story just last week from you know bloomberg right bloomberg mm -hmm. uh media and they mentioned the 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 prince of Liechtenstein, uh, i believe and it was just fascinating this piece where they mention how he's now managing 300 billion for you know the, the wealthy elites this huge portfolio but they mention how the wealth of these elites in Liechtenstein goes back to the the year 1200 right to the 12th to the 13th wow. century where they owned vast swaths of land throughout europe you know germany and beyond and i think this goes back exactly to what you were to your what you're talking about now um and then my best answer to the people who've asked me who runs the world and i think a lot of it goes to these nameless uh you know european dynasties they go back a thousand whatever um years and so uh yeah please continue <laughs> Yeah, some people yeah refer to the, the black nobility, right? So they're still behind the scenes. And that was a, another uh, feature of the Middle Ages. A feature of the Middle Ages, a common one, persistent theme, was you would have these aristocrats and they would fight the king. And so, um, you know, like for instance, in England, you had King John who was taken out and he was forced, you know, they took him to a clearing, they put a, a sword up to his throat and they said, you're going to sign Magna Carta, you know, thereby shifting power away from the monarch um, monarchy to the aristocrats and we're going to call this parliament and the the house of lords are now going to be doing the laws not the king and so whenever they say oh this is a country of a rule of law as opposed to a rule of a monarch with their it sounds really good oh rule of law but then it's really rule of the lawmakers so originally the lawmaker was the king just like Hammurabi was the lawmaker or Solon of Athens you know Moses you know it was usually the king was the lawmaker and so all of a sudden, these oligarchs essentially take that power away and they're going to say, okay, well, we're going to be running this according to an oligarchical model where the aristocrats were there. And a lot of kings would fight back by essentially um, going to the people. Uh, the Greeks called this a tyrant. Like a tyrant was somebody, like we think tyrant, dictator, you know, we despot, we use those as synonyms, but a tyrant was somebody from the ruling class who appealed to the people for help. Right. Um, and in that sense, like, like, Trump would be an example of of a modern, you know, like a billionaire who become, you know, appeals to populism to try to help him pivot around this other group of of billionaires. And so that happened in Europe, all over the place, in England and Germany, where the king realized, hey, okay, I'm I, I'm very powerful, but I'm not as powerful as all the aristocrats combined. They have a bigger army than me. They have a bigger tax base. If they if they coordinate, like Adam Smith said in The Wealth of Nations, he said that you know um, it, it, it's naive to believe that the masters do not combine. If you don't think that the masters don't combine, then you are as ignorant of, of history as you are of the subject. You know, so so he believed in conspiracies <laughs> that the rich do coordinate, and so the king found this out and was basically, how do I drain some of their soldiers? How do I drain some of their tax base? So the king started creating these things called free cities, and they said, okay, so we're going to get some of the peasants off of the aristocrats' land, and by doing this, we will be 
depriving them of soldiers and we would be depriving them of a tax base. So all of a sudden, these first free cities start showing up in Europe. And it was really the king trying to get more people on his side. And he made this deal with them. He said, I'll give you more political rights. You'll get to vote and stuff if you come into these free cities. And ironically, one of the groups that went and took him up on that were the merchants the merc- that would evolve into the mercantile groups. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the Middle Ages was was fraught with this, these power dynamics that are still in play. We still watch these all over the world where you have these oligarchical groups fighting the nominal president or or whatever leader that is. But I but I I was interested, like where this rabbit hole goes down uh even deeper was um okay, so the Protestant Reformation happens in it right in the 1550s. Uh, you know. The Catholic Church loses all this power, all this territory, all these tithes, right? Um, and you get something called the the First Dutch Republic of 1588, right? And so this in the Dutch Republic is where they invent the, the joint stock company, the very first joint stock company. They invent this, the stock exchange, uh, like all these things that we take for granted today as staples of the of the uh, modern world happened in the Netherlands as a result of these tithes going from, from the church now to these mercantile groups. And they created the Dutch East India Company. And, uh, you know, it is funny, too, because on your Telegram channel, you had an image of State Street and Vanguard and, you know, Black Rockets and showing how they have these these mercantile, these Dutch East India Company mm-hmm. ships on on this logo. You know, so to this day, they're making references to to that but what one of the things i always wondered about just getting back to the flag of the united states i always noticed that it doesn't have a cross on it and i was like that's odd why is there no cross every other flag prior to this had crosses on it um and it doesn't have a cross well the, the, there's an answer to that uh the these people the mercantile guilds wanted to get rid their stated goal was to get rid of all thrones and altars Right, get rid of the power of the church, get rid of the power of the monarchs, and then you have this third group, the mercantile guilds will rule. And so the first template of that was the Dutch Republic of 1588, where all of a sudden you have this republic where there's no kings ruling, there's no church ruling. So, so then who's ruling? You know, and of course the answer to that is the Dutch East India Company, the first kind of joint stock company. And this shifts over to England, but I'll shut up. Jump in, interrupt me because I have a habit to have these outpourings. <laughs> something that comes to mind there is, um, again, when you look at the Illuminati and, you know, I, mm-hmm. I, I'm talking about documented stuff. I got, you can't see in the frame here. Yeah. I got a book up. Um, I forget who, who published it, but it's like primary source text from the 19, yeah. 1800s of the Illuminati. And then uh, it's, you know, the French revolution, the whole Voltaire, like um, uh, ideas, and and Marxism uh, and this uh, Gnostic Marxism, let, let, let's say, you know, James Lindsay, who's an atheist, right, refers to, uh, to all of this as this Gnostic cult. And in in the Illuminati's writings and the French revolutionaries and the Marxists and Gnostics, they all want to do away with uh, religion. You know, I was li- 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 I, w- I subscribed to Lutz's Trust's newsletter. They're also in that same vein. These Luciferians uh, yeah. have the same philosophy as these Marxists and Gnostics and um uh illuminists to do away with um christianity uh religion um entirely did you see any connection there well yeah definitely uh okay so so whatever and we go back to mercantilism right whatever country was the mercantile head basically they, they their their elites would 
despise everything that was domestic, everything that was, you know, from their own country. And they would always kind of celebrate and lionize anything that was foreign because it showed, oh, I'm sophisticated. Look, I'm traveling to all these countries, much like yourself, Troy. <laughs> Mongolia and, and you know, Croatia and the United States. I'm, I'm secretly a mercantilist. No, a, glo <laughs> a globalist. Yeah, but that's very like uh, Cicero talks about that in De Republica. Cicero talks about the mercantile uh, cultures like the the he he mentions like a Phoenician city state Sidon I think it was he mentions a couple Greek city states and he says that one of the downsides of this mercantilist culture is it erodes the the domestic institutions as they start bringing foreign ideas in from all these places and so you see that in the Republic of Venice when the Republic of Venice was the mercantile capital of Europe you you saw the first outburst of alchemy as they were getting these ideas from the east um and then that 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 center of power basically shifts to england and when it shifts to england now that same those same esoteric kind of you know internationalist ideas from the east start popping up with theosophy and you see people with fezes you know imitating egypt you see them with the freemasonic you know bro you know say oh egypt and and this was this was part and parcel of mercantilism of them showing how sophisticated i am look i'm getting these ideas from the east what is sophisticate and um what, and this gets us back to that flag, the, the flag that they used, the British East India Company that looks much like the American flag had 13 red and white stripes. Now we're told as kids, oh, those are 13 stripes for 13 colonies. But here's the problem. Those 13 stripes were there before the, the British East India Company was founded in 1600. There weren't 13 colonies in 1600. And uh, so interestingly, the guy who founded the British East India Company, he was an Englishman named Thomas Smythe. He was also the treasurer of the Virginia Corporation. Um, and, uh, so, so you, you see these connections between the British East India Company and the founding of the United States. Several of the founding fathers in the United States were, were Masons. Um, and this is where it gets back to, to the Mason thing. So I looked up a French intellectual. Well, well, if you, if you look up the flag, by the way, it says, why were there 13 stripes in, on that 1600 flag? And it said, because in Freemasonry, 13 was a lucky number. So then I was like, oh, that's interesting. So I put in a search engine, British East India Company, Mason, you know, masonry, just just because of that, and uh, it said that the Freemasonic lodges started as an adjunct of the British East India Company. Everywhere they would go, they would put down an embassy, and this embassy was just a place where Englishmen could get together and they would get newspapers from home. They could network, they could advance in their career, and it just it was like a little enclave of the West if they were in India or, or elsewhere. And um, and by the way, the first uh, Freemasonic lodge that they had planted in India had the same flag with the thirteen red and white stripes in the blue field in the in the center or in the corner. And um, so yeah, so so these free Freemasonic lodges, there was a French scholar, as I said, talking about that. How this is you know, Freemasonry and the British East India Company were like this, right? Because one was an adjunct to the other. And and most conspiracy theorists they put the 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 Freemasonic lodges as if they're the 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 actuating principle but actually they're a symptom of the british east india they 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 are just there where the british east india company went and um so yeah i mean the mayflower as an example uh was a british east india company ship there's a uh an audiobook i sent you a file too of uh william dalrymple who was a historian a scottish historian and he does a history of the british east india company in his book called the anarchy and he talks about how the mayflower uh in the united states was a british east india company ship um, so I don't know if, if you want to add that, that, you know, little sample there, you can, you don't have to, but, um, yeah, so, so I was just interested. I was like the British East India company keeps coming up over and over in the founding of the United States. And, um, 
you know, for instance, the, the, uh, God, what was his name? Robert something or other, it's going to come to me, but the main financier of the American revolution, all of his holdings were with the British East India company. Uh, all the founding fathers were Masons, you know, with the British, you know, uh, Freemasonic free people that the outlay of the United States, the grid of Washington DC is, is on you know, these Masonic symbols that the, 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 the little obelisk for the Washington monument is a Freemasonic symbol that you'll see in all these Freemasonic, you know, um, all these Brit British East India Company enclaves will have these these East these Egyptian symbols because they thought that that was hey look we're sophisticated you know mercantilists we're men of the world <laughs> you know but I'll, I'll shut up go ahead. Uh, jump yeah, in I, I, I mean again for me that this all makes perfect sense you know to ask you a couple questions there so it just seems like what we have today mm -hmm. is a continuation of all of that the Black Rock the Vanguard. The world economic forum because basically our nation it's 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 a corporation we're run uh america's united you know united incorporated states of america we're run by these transnational uh, financial class i think they, they do this to most countries are are run by this transnational corporate class and so um on that and then also i think i've seen many documentaries where you know manly p hall like famous freemason and others they've talked about the creation of the united states as some uh occult freemasonic you know in, in, as you say many Br british imperial project they they refer to it as an atlantis and something interesting for me here uh someone who's born in the u.s you know a proud patriotic sort of americana uh philosophy that i have but i think uh i i, I don't mind swallowing bitter pills and i i kind of view one possibility because i'll you know i always focus on world government because i think that's kind of where we're going or destined to go and uh, i see the the model of the united states you know the united states of america the 50 states in the union uh, now we're seeing this being replicated in europe they're calling for the united states of europe george washington there's a quote from george washington 200 years ago where he said in the future we want to have a united states of europe and i kind of see this as the template for world government so this U united states of america united states of europe model they want to create a united states of the world uh, and so I could kind of see a link between what you're talking about in the initial stages and then them trying to create this Atlantis in the West and then that being th their way of then um, what would you ca call it stepping stone towards like a world system. So, you, you know, your thoughts on some of these <laughs> Thanks. Well, no, I mean, look at the United States. As I said, Thomas Smythe, the guy who founded the British East India Company, was also, as I said, the treasurer of the Virginia Corporation, which creates the Virginia Colony. These were places you could buy stock in. So when you say, oh, the United States is a corporation, yeah, it started that way as a joint stock company. This was a stock, this was a money-making operation as opposed, I have a friend who uh, is at the Bank of Canada. He's a Mexican national uh, and he moved from Mexico uh, to Canada. And he's doing a study right now on the difference of the colonization of Mexico versus the corporation that we know that as the United States. And one was done by the Catholic Church, and one was done by this new mercantile guild. And, and you look at the differences. So whenever the Catholic Church would found something, they would usually be a, sa a saint name, you know, Saint Maria, Saint San Diego, you know, they would have these saint names. Um, oftentimes when the corporation would come in, because a lot large swaths of what we now know as the United States, not even on the West Coast, but even on the East Coast, when is the Spanish Empire went as far north as South Carolina. And like St. Augustine in Florida would be an example of the older Spanish kind of colonies in, on the East Coast. And um, 
the corporation would come and remove the, the saint name because they wanted to get rid of thrones and altars. And they would put like an Indian name, you know, from, from the local place, or they would put some, you know, kind of corporate name, McDonald's or something, you know, as the new city. But he, t- uh, uh, my friend uh, from the Central Bank of Canada, he talks about how Mexico, the, 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 the way that they created the society was much different. He, he talks about how they tithe the people, but those tithes actually went toward building aqueducts, building infrastructure, streets. They would give pensions to old people. And he shows as an economist, he shows that when the church ran things, most of the money did end up going back to the people. However, when the corporation and North, you know, at North of the border, um, this Protestant kind of, you know, thing, uh, happens, most of the money is siphoned away from the people <laughs> to these, these, these corporate stockholders, these shareholders. And, uh, so it's a very different kind of governance model. And, uh, there's a, a writer named Penny Kelly, and she talks about that. She says for 1500 years, the church ruled. And then after that, in 1688, you have 500 years of the nation state. And then after that, you have this third iteration of corporate rule, right? And so Mexico was founded by stage one, you know, by a society that was not primarily economic. It was it was soul-based, spiritual-based, you know, the God and, and the church and stuff like that. Um, then you have the second iteration, right, of the nation state. And now you have this third of, of the corporate state. And we're in a transitional period from the nation state into this kind of corporatocracy. But yeah, you see the creation in, in that Dutch Republic of 1588, you saw the creation of a joint stock company. You saw all these colonies organized on a corporate model. Like my, I'll give you an example. My, I live in South Carolina and in South Carolina, I was reading um, a guy named uh, Walter Edgar and he wrote a history of South Carolina. And um, he says that South Carolina was founded very differently from the Northeastern states. He said a lot of the Northeastern states had these utopian Christians and Quakers and Puritans. He said South Carolina, however, was built as a, as a joint stock company, as a stock operation, as a corporation. And he said because of that, he said um, that South Carolina did not have any civic institutions. It was not meant to be a home. It was not meant to be a country. It was meant to make money. So they put slaves in. They, you know, have have. It, it's very brutal and dystopian, like the setup. And and that was the 1600s. They had already had this model. It was based on the earlier Barbados model that England had had running. And Barbados collapses. A lot of the population moves to South Carolina. They create this corporate structure. And a lot of the, the instability that would lead to the American Revolution and the Civil War was because South Carolina was very tumultuous because it was not designed as a home. It was designed as a corporation, very cynically. And because it didn't have civic structures, it very easily collapsed. And uh, you, you, you know, and it led to a lot of chaos, which spread as a contagion through the rest of the colonies, leads to, you know, all these, all these things. And now they're they're basically when you look at globalization now, global, it's really just mercantilism. They want to remake all the nations like South Carolina. It's a corporation, you know, where a few stockholders get money off of it, but the rest of you have to live in a dystopia. You know, with with men with guns, you know, maintaining law and order because there's you know just savagery and and people raping people, <laughs> just crime everywhere. You know, but it's okay as long as the bottom line is met. So, well, you know, the, that's unfortunate. That was my next question. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, and, and and what you just discussed, this new model that we're transitioning to, um, this mercantilist corporate model there's there's many synonyms as you know what what people are labeling labeling it today right we can i think we can use the term great reset uh right and then things like 15 minutes cities smart cities it could come into play this whole as i call it the algorithm ghetto option the capture society cbdc's um to get your thoughts on you know 
mo- mo- to get your further thoughts, you know, wh- what is it they want? How do, how do they want to rule the world now? Where are they taking us? And it seems like they want to do this in every single nation. There's not going to be a place uh, any longer that will be uh, exempt because uh, maybe to get your thoughts, you know, this includes this idea of bricks and multipolarity because I see this mm-hmm. same sort of system which you just touched on. They're trying to implement it literally in every single nation on the planet. Uh, your further thoughts? Yeah, like Catherine Austin Fitch, she said that she was talking about the growing technocratic infrastructure apparatus that they're putting together. And she said, so people look at Putin and are like, oh, well, you know, he's really a good guy because he's fighting these globalists, but really he's using the same architecture and implementing all the same policies. And she said, what's actually happening is a debate, not over getting rid of the, that kind of slave, you know, kind of apparatus, but who's going to control it. And she said in the West, they've determined corporations are going to control it. Whereas Russia and China want the state to control it. They want the nation state. So once again, you see th- th- this transitional period, you know, 1500 years of the church, 500 years of the nation state, now corporatocracy, 50 years. And, you know, so they're kind of in the 20th century the, as this nation state model. Um, and so that's what, what the battle is. The battle is not over freedom versus tyranny. It's going to be who's ruling the tyranny. But, um, but yeah, where this is going, I, I, I was talking to a friend about this. Um, Herbert Spencer. Herbert Spencer talks about in his study of sociology, you understand how a civilization works by understanding its institutions. And so when you put an institution in place, you're putting a system in place. And Donella Meadows in Thinking in Systems, she says, if it doesn't repeat, it's not a system. So all systems are just algorithms that repeat, right? Like like I, I always use the example of our constitution in the United States is uh, an algorithm, right? So it says every four years you vote for a president, every six years you vote for a, uh, you know, a, a senator or whatever. And um, so it's just repetitions. And so it's not that history repeats itself. It's that institutions repeat themselves. So if you have very similar institutions, like the, a lot of the corruption we're seeing now, and people equate it either to the Roman Empire or very interestingly, the Spanish Empire is a lot of parallels with the United States. Um because we we have imitated their institutions. So you're going to see a lot of the same perverse incentives, a lot of the same behavioral patterns, not because history repeats it, but because in institutions. And likewise, just going back to the, the, the mercantile guilds, they ran the Middle Ages in a socialistic, fe- in the feudal system, right? So when people talk about, oh, this neo-feudalism they want to run it, of course it is because it's a system and it will repeat. So what they're going to do is they, they want to take us back to how they ran Europe in the 1300s and the 1200s. And um, yeah, so that's what that's about. So people are always confused. They're always like, wait, but how could the capitalist corporations, they're capitalists, and this communist feudal thing you're talking about, that's totally, you know, like con- contradictory. And it's and it's not. When you look at the history of the mercantile guilds, that's exactly how they operated. And so they've, I mean, since the 1500s, they have, uh, have basically done this campaign of we've got to get rid of kings, we've got to get rid of the church, <laughs> because it leaves us in charge. And that's what this is really about. It's a, it's a turf war between these three groups that have been fighting since the Middle Ages. And uh, and so, yeah, so they're, they're remaking this. Uh, Robert Kennedy, by the way, I, w- I wanted to make this point. Uh, he, he actually, in a speech, he talks about the British East India Company and its role in uh, 1772 in the American Revolution. And we're not taught this in history, you know. Um, 
But he says, he says, yeah, because of the the basically uh William Dalrymple covers this as well in his book. He said that, and, th- and this is where this gets interesting. Uh, not only is the modern nation state what we think of as the republics that sprang up all over the place with no crosses on their flags, right? All of a sudden you get Italy, you get France, and all these these revolutions where corporate states take over, the, they push the church out, they push the state, you know, the, the monarch out. And um but uh but yeah but they uh in addition to that they they essentially um you know take over you know like like the economic strains of the country the cultural strains of the country and uh so robert kennedy talks about how sent like essentially the british east india company goes into debt there's this guy named fortis i think his name was andrew fortis and he tries to short british east india company stock and he loses like three hundred thousand dollars which is like billions of dollars in today's money and uh he runs to france he doesn't want to pay his creditors off he flees it causes like a banking crash all these banks that ha- are heavily invested in british east india company 61 percent of parliament all of them had british east india company stock George III had British East India Company stock. And for the first time in history, you have a a, a too-big-to-bail corporate bailout, where England, for the first time, says, okay, this is too big. The British East India Company had uh, an army twice the size of the British Army. Um, They were all over the world, running as a de facto nation-state, an empire. And uh, and so they said, if this goes down, it's going to take all of us down. So we're going to to basically bail them out, and we're going to tax the American colonies and all of our other colonies to to bail out the British East India Company. We're never told that. We're always told, oh, maybe something to do with the French and Indian War or war debt. No, it was the British East India Company in 1772. And now here's the second aspect that that stays with us in the modern world. There was no lender of last resort. For any stocks or bonds, anything that went bad, any security that went bad, there was no lender of last resort. So then they create these things called, ooh, central banks that become lenders. So these things, these institutions that we still have to this day were as a result of the British East India Company essentially using the nation state or this ostensible shell company of a nation state to basically take money from the productive workers and then transfer it to themselves. And we're still seeing the same behavior. Why? Because institutions repeat. You know, when you have the same institutions, you know, so very, very interesting that Robert Kennedy like mentioned that, but we never were never told, you know, this this history of you know these these corporations and why our revolution happened. Yeah. The revolution has started two years before. And it started when the British had passed an oppressive law ra- raising the taxes on tea in New England. And they raised, this was a law that the British Crown made in collusion with the British East India Company, which the king owned shares in, his ministers owned shares in, and most of the aristocracy owned shares in. And it was their plan to impose the tax on New England merchants, but exempt the British East India Company from the tax so that they could undersell everybody and that they would make a profit for their shareholders. So the revolution, and, the, and of course, the Americans responded by dressing as Wampanoag Indians and boarding the British East India Company's ships and dumping the tea into the harbor. And that's when the British sent that troop over here to quell the rebellion. So that rebellion was in part against empire. But this, this spear tip of that rebellion was a fury that the, that the colonists against the merger, the corrupt merger of state and corporate power. I, he really nailed that, Rick. He did. And Doc, did he deliberately choose to announce his candidacy on the 
anniversary of the right of Paul Revere and, yes. and facing of British troops. We need, a, the we need a new revolution, that's for sure. But for him to, and I'd never really thought about it before. I, I know revolutionary history and everything, mm -hmm. but never really made the connection between the collusion between government and corporations. You think about it in today's world, but you don't think about it in the 1770s. But that's exactly what happened. The British government was deep in bed with the British East India Company, exempted that company from having to pay taxes on tea. That made it an unequal competition for uh, the colonists. The colonists responded. Well, you know, in, in like manner. It is so interesting that he makes that connection. There was corporate welfare. Yes. In the 1700s. You know, a, a number of guests that I've had on, like Alex Craner, uh, Matt Errett, um, some, and they're, they're a little bit LaRouche-y, and I don't, I don't see anything bad with that. I think, uh, you know, LaRouche had a lot of uh, good analysis, but um, these folks tend to point their finger often at the British um, Empire. And, you know, if, if we talk about today where the power is centered at, you know, is, is that sort of a moot point or, or is the power sort of like, how might I describe it, centered um, ethereal? You know, it's kind of like, it's this global, like, it's, it's it's kind of like in space, symbolically speaking. There's no real geographical center that, that we have this transnational now class where they're not centered anywhere particularly or do you still feel like you know king charles the third and the the city of london are is is a keynote of everything going on or or well, you know you just mm -hmm. you described god right giordano bruno uh jorge luis borges had like six different people pascal giordano bruno they all had the same concept of god is a sphere whose circumference is everywhere and whose center is nowhere or whatever so it was interesting that you're describing this power elite this amorphous diffuse nebulous power elite almost like an invisible god um, yeah, I, I was just talking, and this is this is my interest you because it interested me. I was talking to Vicki Davis, and Vicki just interviewed her the other day, and she had a really interesting insight. Um, and we talked about how the British um essentially, okay, the creation of the UN, like how did that come about? And so essentially the origins, as everybody knows, goes back to the League of Nations and World War One, subsequent to World War One. Brit Britain had bankrupted itself. And we were talking about, you know, I never thought of thought of it in these terms that when you go bankrupt like argentina or like mexico you know in the, in the 90s you default on on bonds or whatever um you know people will stop loaning to you it's a very terrible thing nobody wants to default and so well what does england do england says hey let's create this shell company we're going to call it the league of nations and, and eventually the united nations we're going to create the shell company and i was talking to her i was watching this guy's video and he was saying how the rich do not pay taxes and he says okay so create a trust at the top and then you have a holding company and and the, the holding company is owned 100 by that trust it gets all the assets but if the but if you get sued it's the holding company that is responsible for the liabilities right and then underneath that holding company you might have llc's you'll have llc1 llc2 llc3 so if you look at this, what they created was this shell company, right? Where there's a blind trust at the top, and then there's a holding company called the United Nations. And then underneath this holding company are nation states, right? So, so what they did was essentially say, hey, we don't want to go bankrupt. We don't want to, how, how do I keep from going bankrupt? But I still want to control things. So I'm going to outsource my liabilities to the shell company, right? 
And then I'll still be able to run the world. I'll still be able to to have my colonies, except now my colonies will be done through the shell company that now is, you know, so I get all the, the benefits with none of the liabilities. And for a military, which was a huge expense, we'll get the United States, but later it'll become NATO. Right. So now we're not going to have to pay for our own military. We're not going to have to pay any of these, these liabilities. We will outsource it. And so now what you see is, is the nation state turning into a corporation, right? Operating very much like a corporation. And, and that's what we're watching. We're watching this new organizing principle that is not the organizing principle of the church, a society based around spirituality is not the organizing principle of the nation state, which is organized around patriotism. You have this third iteration of the corporate state. And this, I always wondered why me and, and Nikki or Vicky were talking about this, um, why racism is the new kind of taboo. You're a witch, right? Racism, all this kind of stuff. And I realized because in the organizing principle of the church, if you would ask Queen Isabella what she was in 1492, what are you? Her go-to would have been Christian, right? The world saw itself in terms of religion because that's how it was organized. Islam, you know, it still does. Um, but then the nation state comes up and Albert Camus pointed out, he said that Bismarck had, a, had an awful time unifying the German nation state because they were so disparate until he came up with the myth of race, a common race, right? So whenever you go to a nation state, the building of a nation state, its organizing principle is not your religious affiliation, but your race. And so political Zionism, which kind of grew up in the same time period of, of the Germans and Anschluss and stuff, it has a lot of that going. And because they're at the, the opening stages of, of the creation of a nation, they're very uh, they, they care about their citizens. They're very ethnic, cohesive, and all this kind of stuff. And so people are now yelling at them. The left is yelling at them, oh, you're racist, and you're this, and you're that. Well, all nation states are at their founding. Only when they start to decay into this corporate structure does racism basically become the new, you're, you're a pagan. You know, We've got to remove the old culture, and we've got to bring in this new culture. So what they're doing with the anti-racism is it, it dissolves the nation state. Right. So that's actually why they're, they're going after it because they want the dissolution of nation states so that the corporate structure, the new ideology, like uh, I talked to uh, J.R. Nyquist and he talked about that Christianity, the way Christianity spread was very similar, that it displaced the pagan, the earlier religions. It happened in the cities. Christianity spread in the cities. The pagans were the people in the rural areas, right? The farmers and stuff. And that's what the word in Latin pagan means. It means like hillbilly, hick, you know, because Christianity was from the cities. And so now you're seeing in the cities, Cities, this new ideology emanating this, you know, and and to, to dissolve the old ideology, just like the Christians did. Oh, you're a witch if you worship Zeus or you worship Hera or something. You're a witch, you know, and they and your gods are demons. And so that's why racism is the new kind of bugaboo because they need to dissolve it to dissolve the nation state so that you get this new corporate structure. So. Hey, I, I wasn't kidding when I said top tier analyst. You know, I've had these ideas in my head, but you're just much better at uh, uh, more eloquently putting it out there. And, and just to step back, you mentioned UN and and, and NATO, and I've I, you know I've always believed again the purpose of the UN, just as you outlined this corporate structure, but to be the world government. You know, in in their own writings, they've called it you know world corporation world government my point is they want a structure for total global uh political and economic control and that i've always believed that nato from it was planned to become the one world uh army uh, as an adjunct to the un and we're seeing that now they're calling for a, uh, nato to become the one world army literally they're saying this you know uh there was an article a month ago saying let's rename it to new 
you know, instead of North Atlantic terrorist organization, I mean, that's how yeah. I call it. Uh, they want to yeah. rename it to new alliance treaty organization because this mission is now global they're trying to use um you know one of their tactics is like in latin america colombia they've called it a, a global nato partner or something that that's the, you know that's their way of yeah, oh it's a global nato partner and then a few years later it becomes a member of nato in latin america right that, that that's that's how yeah. i see it um and so y- y- your further thoughts on um as we now transition to you know the, this corporate structure, and I think regional unions are next. I mean, what do you think? Because I'm hearing yeah. the EU is is that blueprint now. Because I've been repeating this because for me it's important. My Mexican president Lopez Obrador Amlo, um, he specifically said this year that we should integrate Canada, USA, and Mexico based on the EU model. Bukele in El Salvador says we should integrate Central America based on the EU model. Um, the South Americans are saying we should integrate South America based on the EU model. So that that kind of, I think, is exactly what you're uh, talking about. So you, you, your thoughts on NATO becoming the world army uh, and then how they're f- from here on out, how they're going to what will this corporate structure look like? Well, like I said, the British East India Company at their height, their their army, the army of a corporation was twice the size of the English army. Right. So you have a corporate corp- corporation with a military <laughs> branch. Um, and so that that they're just replicating that. Right. And um, so like Aristotle in politics, he says, you know, what are the basic components of any government? And he said one is infrastructure, two is the, a judiciary, and he said three is a military. Right. So if you have any of these three elements, you have a government. And so they for decades they were like, oh, this is a conspiracy theory, the UN and world government. Oh, it's just a conspiracy theory. But then they quietly created the components of a government. They created for infrastructure, they created the World Bank and the IMF. They created an international court system in The Hague, right? And now with NATO, they're creating a global military. You you take those Lego pieces, you click them together, voila. World government it does all the functions of government. And this is interesting. Uh Aristotle actually adds a fourth component. He's that we don't use. Uh the fourth component was the temple, religion. He said that the fourth and and they're even going to do that. Like you mentioned the Lucius Trust, right? Like all this kind of Luciferian stuff that they're doing, um, you know, that's based on these, you know, the the, the kind of mercantilist fake pseudo quasi esotericism of the East, <laughs> you know, that they're 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 trying to cobble together through syncretism, this this kind of secular, you know, religion. I mean, look at like for instance, the Catholic Church, right? Catholic means universal, the universal church, or the global church. So globalism is basically Catholicism without God, right? You could you maintain all the structures of a religion, but without you know a nominal. Like Hitler said that Hitler said he was a great fan of the Catholic Church, not in the sense of any religious thing, but how good it was as as an organizing principle, how you administer a society. And he used a lot of those same structures. Intelligence agencies, by the way. Um, explicitly were based on the Jesuits from the Catholic Church. So in iteration one of a ruling system where the church ruled things, you had the Jesuits going around and they would infiltrate countries. Oh, by the way, this gets back to the British East India Company, by the way, as well. All words lead there, apparently. Um, so the reason why the, the, the flag, by the way, doesn't have a cross on it, right, was because the British East India Company hoisted up their 13 red and white stripes with the Union Jack, which is two crosses, the cross of St. George and St. Andrew combined, right, the British flag. And so they went into the Japanese harbor to trade, do their mercantile activities. And the Japanese said, hey, we just kicked these Jesuits out. They were spying. They really weren't trying to start churches. They were just trying to subvert our government. And we kicked them out. We don't trust Christians anymore. If you have a cross on your flag, we will not allow you into our harbor. So they removed the cross 
which is why the United States flag does not have a cross. By the way, if you look at the, the original flag George Washington fought under, he fought under something, and people can look this up right now. It's called the Continental Colors, and it is identical with the British East India Company flag, 13 red and white stripes with the Union Jack originally. But then the British East India Company has to have that removed, and we have <laughs> at the same time and replace it with stars. But um, yeah, so we're watching a lot of these same structures. I wanted to hit this point as well. Um, the the emergence of republics as opposed to monarchies. We were always taught, oh, that's a great thing. Look, no kings, and we're getting you know these republics. It starts with the Dutch Republic in 1588, where a corporation is ruling. Get get rid of the crosses on the flags. Uh, corporations run things. Central banks run things. And so basically, um, England basically the, the power sh- shifts from the Netherlands to England when King Charles the first basically makes a mistake and he seizes the gold from a Dutch bank in England and he's like I'm the king I can do whatever I want I'm going to seize your gold the Dutch bankers were very angry at that and they basically train and provide arms and logistics to a guy named Oliver Cromwell and they send Cromwell into England he beheads Charles the first because and and he found something called you know the Commonwealth of England or the first Republic of England so just just like the Netherlands, the Dutch Republic of 1588, they outsourced this new republic model to England, right? And then from England, you know, the United States becomes a republic. It's a corp- corporate state, you know, with no crosses, no kings, no church. Corporation is going to is going to be ruling you, and that's the new model. And so we were always sold, sold this idea that oh, isn't a republic an advance, and isn't it this greater thing? But really, it's a mask for this corporate structure, you know. For like in my country or yours, you know, um, you know, well, Mexico is better and I'm going to consider that your country, <laughs> but, but, uh, yeah. but you're, you know, you grew up in the United States, just, you know, just like I did. And we were always told, I mean, you, you can attest to that, right. Uh, you know, how superior the republics were and getting away from those bad icky Kings, you know, but the Kings had a, had a adversarial relationship with the guilds. And now we don't, now we have politicians who were very, you know, kind of in the pockets of these corporations. And it was thus from the beginning, like the central bank model that the British East India Company starts. And um, Alexander Hamilton, no sooner than the United States is founded, than they put a central bank in. And it was called the first bank of the United States. Alexander Hamilton does it, I think, in 1791. The ink is not even dry on the Constitution. He does this un- unconstitutional thing. He had no authority to bring a central bank over. They do, and 80% of its stock is owned by the Bank of England. So you do this economic takeover of the United States through the central bank. I mean, stuff that was happening back then is still happening. I mean, it's, 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 funny. I mean, history has not changed because the institutions have not changed, you know, and and we, we've done a very bad job of tracing back the origins of these institutions. And when you do, you keep hitting the British East India Company over and over and over. Well, one thing that uh, I've had on my mind, um, you know, before you coming on, but, you know, as well, you mentioning this stuff now, uh, and I fully agree with you, you know, we're taught that the Republic is the best system. And um, I've come to believe that, you know, living under a, a good king is, you know, is it could could be good uh, as well. Uh, I, I, and you know, more my Christian worldview is I take the line, you know, that Jesus did. You know, my kingdom is not of this world, so uh, it doesn't really matter what political system I, I live under. You know, I was talking with some Croatians, and as a Croatian, we're now living under the European Empire again, the European Union, Yugoslavia, as we call it. We were before 2013 for 20 years. Uh, Croatian Republic. Before that was communist Yugoslavia. Then for three years, a Nazi Croatian 
uh, re- regime than you know the kingdom of the Slovenes and 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 Serbs and Croats and you know then under the Roman Empire. So it's like it really doesn't matter because you just you it doesn't matter what political system you you live under because you 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 know throughout history you're living all through all throughout these different political systems. And then for me, again, for me as a Christian, it's just like, th- that's not the point of life for me. You know, just the spiritual is different from the political, but um, you know, y- your thoughts on that, but also um, given that we live under these corporate re- Dutch republics, um, we have experienced in the last couple hundred years, um, you know, pros- relative prosperity, you know, the fact that I, you and I can live in this middle-class relatively prosperous lifestyle it hasn't been all that bad has it um well it depends like in the wealth of nations adam smith and this is all from the same time period right 1772 british east india company writes the wealth of nations in 1776 uh very landmark year 1776 founding of the illuminati 1776 but anyway um adam vice up but uh it's funny because that's stigmatized i'm not allowed to mention that. but uh so so adam smith talks about how what is wealth and he says money is not wealth, right? He says he says money is just a unit of exchange to acquire wealth. He says wealth is land, wealth is potable water, wealth is wheat, right? That's a, that's actual wealth. Uh, he he also says interestingly, you can judge the wealth of a society by how many children you can afford, right? So if you could afford ten children, that's a wealthy society. If you can afford no children and you're living in a cardboard box with a cat, but you've got lots of fiat currency, are you really wealthy? Did it lift all ships? <laughs> you know, we our grandparents owned land. Our great grandparents owned land. Do you own any? You know, like what is the land ownership? So has it really created all this wealth, or is that a talking point? You know, as they give you these these Chuck E. Cheese tokens, and you're living poor and poor, and they intend you to get even more poor. You know, as, as we own nothing and we'll be happy. <laughs> so yeah, I'm I'm not sure. I mean, and and this mercantilist structure, by the way. Um, that they want to kind of enforce. There was two things that that were against it. Um, one was capitalism. When capitalism rises up, it is a threat, direct threat to mercantilism, because now you can make your own stuff. So that was one of the problems in the American colonies. The Americans were like, hey, I want to make my own shirt for a dollar. But the British are like, no, 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 you don't get to manufacture anything. They, uh, William Pitt, even in 1770, he said, you know, the Americans should not be able to even manufacture a horseshoe nail. They're just going to stay a plantation colony. We will do all the manufacturing and we'll sell you back that shirt for $20 and we'll make $19. But and the Americans were like, but I can make this for a dollar using capitalism. Make, you know, and so they they were like, nope, you're going to do this global supply chain so that we make money. If you made your own stuff through this capitalism thing, you know, how where's that going to leave us? So they they were very anti-capitalist. They were mercantilist. They were globalist. And um so that's why they attacked Germany in World War One. HG Wells in eighteen ninety nine he wrote a book called Anticipations. Eighteen ninety nine. And he said Germany is through capitalism, through factory production, they're basically displacing the old slave model of the mercantilist model of having colonies in like Indonesia. Like if you wanted rubber, the British East India Company would sail, get rubber from rubber tree plants, bring it back. It was very cost costly. Uh use slaves and models and infrastructure, all this uh, had to build bridges and ports, very expensive. The Germans innovated and said, hey, let's create synthetic rubber. 
for pennies on the dollar. It will be cheaper. It's of higher quality. People started buying the German product and the English said, we have to take them down. In 1899, they were already thinking of pretext to take Germany, to take capitalism down because they wanted their mercantilist global supply chain. And so what they want to do now is erase all of our nation states because they're saying, hey, these, if we have separate nations, this hurts our global supply chain because for accounting purposes, if you have different tariff rates, different tax rates, different judicial, judicial structures, this will be a pain to us. What if we harmonize the laws around the world. Let's erase all the lines. It'll be easier for the global supply chain. Now, you had a guest on, and I'm going to be talking to him soon, Jack Buffington, and he was talking about the collapse of supply chain number one. If that goes down, right, the, you're going to have a challenge to the global, the, the supply, the, the mercantilists, the British East India Company of today, the World Economic Forum, all this, the, they're the direct descendant, um, where they want to erase nation states. Um, and, uh, so if we can, he talks, he talks about supply chain 2.0, where we make our own things, where we have 3d printing, where it's kind of like in the American colonies, colonies in the 1700s. Hey, why do I need this global supply? I could get things cheaper and, and without the, the, the fuel costs and all these things. Uh, he mentioned jeans. If you send jeans from, uh, you know, Indonesia, it used to be 15 cents. Now it's a dollar. Everything's getting more costly. So supply chain 2.0, this is capitalism 2.0. This just as capitalism was a threat to their mercantilist model, supply chain 2.0 is going to be they're going to go crazy trying to stop it because if 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 we get that we're going to get nation states again we're going to be able to maintain our own civilizations and that's the good news um so i don't know that's emerging right now so we'll see where that goes that's there's some hope there so we are in this struggle nothing is set in uh stone and you know that was sort of my next question on on how do you do you see them succeeding um you know what what do we do do, do we, you know, my, my view is always we, we need to resist uh, and we also have to prepare, you know, like let's resist, resist, resist. But I need to have like a farm ready to, to fall back to, you know, like a like well. a pre prepper type thing. Um, and so you see them being able to, you know, put the cherry on top of their world government or, you know, before it happens, it, 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 there's, still, you know, a lot of things will go wrong for them. Um, your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, every system goes through entropy it falls apart no system lasts forever you know you thought that the catholic church was insurmountable you know as as a secular organization it ran all the schools it paved all the roads it did everything all the pensions charity everything the catholic church did how could they ever fall and of course they do and then the nation state rises up and you get the kings and stuff um and by the way you mentioned that you don't have a problem with with monarchy neither did thomas hobbes or aristotle or cicero they said if you could have a pure form of government what would be the best pure form of government and they said monarchy they said republics um they said if you could have a mixed form of government and so cicero basically describes having the three classical forms as a mixed form and he said so the classical forms are monarchy aristocracy and republic right and so so they had basically like a king type figure that called the the consul then they had the roman senate which was the aristocracy and then they had the plebeians like the house of plebe you know and so england had the same thing they had a king they had a house of lords and a house of commons the united states did it with a president with the senate and with the house of uh, representatives that was their their so it was a mixed form of government it wasn't a pure republic the articles of confederation we were a pure republic under that but they got rid of that got the mixed form of government and he said if you couldn't have the mixed form of government, which would offset the liabilities and the bad aspects and kind of keep some of the good aspects. He said, even that will decay. He said, but if you had to have a pure form, I would rather have monarchy because you know who's in charge. And, and in Leviathan, Hobbes makes that point. He says, in a monarchy, everybody knows who's in charge. He said, in a republic uh, where anybody can be the leader, 
you get all this internecine fighting and everybody attacks each other. And he said, the only time that a Republic is at peace is when it has an external enemy. He said, if you do not have an external enemy, it'll immediately fall into this fractious kind of infighting. And we've seen the United States as a Republic where they've, they've only had peace for, I think, three years of their entire history. There's always some global conflict. And the biggest existential threat to the United States happened with the nominal collapse of the Soviet Union, because we had this external enemy. And then no sooner does the Soviet Union go down, then all of a sudden, the United States starts attacking itself, that all the different demographics, all the different groups. And so Hobbes warned about that, that this happened. I mean, the Greeks knew about this, you know, so so there are inherent, um, you know, kind of liabilities to the Republic that we're, we were never told as kids. We were never told, hey, you're going to be given to war because war is the only thing that will hold you keep everybody from each other's throats. So you're going to be at war all the time with this republic, you know. We're told, you know, these these myths that oh, no democracy has ever gone to war against another, you know, it's Francis Fukuyama kind of stuff, but none of that is true. <laughs> you know, w- without war, we will attack ourselves so that people could vie for power. We saw this in the Roman Empire. Um, where they would actually, uh, in Empires of Trust by Thomas Madden, he talks about Scipio Africanus defeating Hannibal. He defeated one of the greatest generals, you know, bar only Alexander the Great, um, defeats him. Everybody loves him. The people love him. And the Senate's first instinct is how do we take him down? The people love him. They might make him into a king. If they make him into a king, we lose power. So to thank him for saving Rome, let's stab him in the back. Uh, we saw the same thing with Majorianus at the end of the Roman Empire in the, in the fifth century. The barbarians had taken over. They'd taken over the Italian peninsula, they'd taken over Spain. He goes, gets Spain back, uh, you know, starts getting all these he's he's this man of ethics and morals. And 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 they said he was second only probably to Marcus Aurelius as an ethical leader. He goes back, uh, the, the barbarians come in, they retake Spain. He goes back to Italy. And no sooner does he go back to Italy than the Senate stabs him in the back. They murder him in an assassination. And then the barbarians come in, take over, Roman Empire gone forever. So you have this structure that abets treason, where you have this Mitt Romney class of senators. <laughs> and you know, and and we see the same behavior because we have the same institutions. You know, so we're watching, you know, repetitions. And it's unfortunate, but it does give us, if you know the algorithm, you know where this is likely to go. So I do think that eventually, just like the church went down, just like the nation state went down, that corporatocracy will go down and probably be replaced by more of a church-like structure. We're going to be, just like how monarchies degrade into republics, republics degrade into dictatorships, which leads back to monarchy. So we're going to see a collapse, but on the other side of that collapse, I think that we're probably going to go back to a more God-centered society rather than, it's the economy, stupid. That's the thinking of the British East India Company. We're we're running this place like a Walmart, not your home. It's a Walmart. It's an economic zone. You know, that's going to be gone. And it's going to be, you know, but it's going to, it's, it's going to be hell getting through to that other side. But I think that's eventually what's going to happen. So I, I hope you're right. And one thing you mentioned about war being necessary makes me think of 1967 report from Iron Mountain, which I don't think was a hoax, which I think was commissioned. And then they discuss how do they maintain, how do they get to their world government, but being able to replace the militarist, um, option so they were brainstorming how to sort of like keep doing what they're doing but without the war um aspect and they, they you know they came up with the green uh ideology and even you know it, 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 and they discussed creating fake external enemies like international terrorism like bin laden and and, and UFOs. Uh, right yeah. and then they <laughs> you know using a ufo phenomenon and and 
quote aliens because I don't believe in them um, yeah, I mean, as as um, a way to continue doing what they're doing. So we've covered a lot. I hope people enjoyed this uh, chat. And then, of course, they can continue to follow your uh, channel. The link is in the description. But you know, is there any final thought then um, for us as we head head into World War Three and? <laughs> well um, one of the things there uh, final thought just really quickly uh there was a book called scale um by jeffrey west he's a physicist and he was talking about um the guy who invented fractals was a guy named richardson in england and he invented fractals noting that um every war seemed to increase exponentially so you would have 2500 people dying this century then it would be you know 25000 then 250000 if you extrapolate up to that fractal 250000 people died uh in, or two, excuse me 250 million people died in in the 20th century so if you extrapolate up that would be 2.5 billion in the 21st century uh which is interesting charles nenner uh he's dutch by the way dutch republic um he he was talking about that that he he's seeing in the next global conflict a possible two billion so when he said that i was like oh that's interesting because that accords with the fractal number of richard <laughs> um yeah so who knows i mean so whether things get crazy like that uh i don't know if it'll be conventional war because they're they seem to be you know that damages property and they don't want that um so it might be war by other means you know so it might be bioweapons i hope we won't go there it might be it's going to be polycrisis it's going to be a number of different things that they're going to use um you know to to enslave the world but as i said the good news is the silo effect happens any large system will eventually break down and i think that in the end they lose but for right now do what you said <laughs> try to get some real wealth get some farm get some get a garden going get some chickens and goats and apple trees and uh buckle up Buckle up. That's it. I, I was listening to Charles Denner's recent interview with uh, Greg. Uh, listen to him all the Greg time, Hunter. Greg. Greg Hunter. So yeah, he's uh, that's good stuff. And hey, you're gonna you're gonna um, irritate the no virus people when you mention biological weapons. Bi Bioweapons don't exist. Uh, you know, gain a function that doesn't exist. So I, I'm, I'm I'm being silly. You know, you we said have to, it. I didn't. <laughs> we, we, you know. We, <laughs> If for what you know, for those of us that believe whatever it is, it is that we believe, we have to be able to laugh at ourselves. You know, people make mock me for being Christian and whatever. I laugh about it. And uh, just as people listening who are into the no virus thing who might get offended by what I just said, laugh at yourself. You know, you have to be self. Uh, what do you call it? Uh, deprecating, but facing. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, great stuff, uh, <laughs> Daniel. Um, I know if you think you're restarting your YouTube channel, you'll be interviewing folks like Jack Buffington and, and where do people best go to follow you? Yeah, just go to my YouTube channel, The Daniel Natal Show, and uh, I will see you there. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list that goes out with each podcast and every weekend with a collection of news headlines. The newsletter and website are our last lines of defense. We're being censored and deplatformed. It's nearly impossible to find geopolitics and empire on the Google search engine. We've been blacklisted. YouTube frequently takes down our videos with strikes. Facebook restricts our page. Reddit and Twitter take down posts. And after the Associated Press mentioned geopolitics and empire in a 2021 article co-written with NATO, our Patreon account was terminated. Vimeo also terminated our pro account. The best free way to help Geopolitics and Empire is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and subscribe to all of our media channels. You can find the video broadcast now on five platforms. 
Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, and Brighteon. You can find the audio broadcast on the podcast ecosystem, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and so on. My current favorite social media channels are Twitter and Telegram, but you can also find us on Gab, MeWe, Minds, Float, VK, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Finally, Geopolitics and Empire is in dire need of funding to continue. You can leave a donation, purchase a consultation with the host, or become a member to receive additional benefits. We also produce a weekly broadcast called Dissident Thinker for members and Rockfin subscribers only. We will continue to fight the good fight come hell or high water. Thank you for listening.